Okay, right. So uh, to remind us about the purpose of this letter again, Paul wrote his first letter to the Corinthians to deal with growing pastoral crises uh, in that congregation there in Corinth. His purpose was to recalibrate the life of the church so that they were once again on track and living in light of their calling. Right there, the, the letter deals with a host of issues, but the main areas are ministry, church discipline, how to relate to one another, which is where we find ourselves tonight, the Lord's Supper, worship, and the resurrection. So it addresses a, a whole host of issues about life, uh, most areas of life. And still, if we consider the, the what I've called the, the gravitational centers of this letter, uh, and how they are a defense of Paul's ministry, church discipline, the Lord's Supper, and worship. Uh, we can see that this book is really about the formal and institutional life of the church. The book is about church life, but church life centers in the formal activities that God has appointed for us to do as his people. And so the first major portion of the book, which we uh, covered in chapters 1 to 4, was about Paul's apostolic ministry, uh, the foundation of a gospel community. Uh, the main problem regarding divisions in the church is rooted in divisions based on people's preferences. Uh, the main point that we covered uh, two weeks ago was that Paul defended his ministry on the basis that the gospel itself must be foremost and God himself commissioned Paul to preach that gospel in the way that he did. And then the second part of this book in chapters 5 to 7, which we revisited last week, addresses more specific aspects of division and controversy in the Corinthian congregation. These chapters mark more formal features of church life, according to the scriptures regarding church discipline. We saw last week that the Bible emphasizes how the church is genuinely real. It is a collection of, or the collection of, as Paul put it, those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's discipline. Uh, does actually address features of our lives and has an effect on how we relate to one another. And so we come to chapters 8 to 10, or in some ways, uh, chapters 8 to 11, where Paul addressed a question about church life concerning the food that we eat. Um, chapter 11 is about the Lord's Supper, which you can see uh, how that Christian meal has some connection to this issue of what Christians should be eating, even though uh, in many ways, and at least in the way that the church has used it uh, over the centuries, it is a bit distinct um, from that point. Um, the Corinthians, to give some background about what's going on here, um, the Corinthians lived in a pagan city, Corinth. Uh, it was a Roman settlement, which obviously had then pagan temples and Animal sacrifice was, of course, a, a major feature of those temples. And there were two pointed issues that, that grew out of, of this context for us. And so the first is that the temples themselves would host uh, events like uh, sacrificial meals, uh, almost like going to a restaurant 
in the temple. Um, so there was a question about whether it was permissible for Christians to join in those meals where people had sacrificed these animals uh, to idols. Since, after all, Christians know that the pagan gods, these idols, are ultimately not real. They're just statues. Um, so that was one of the questions for them. You know, why can't I just go to the meal in the temple? The second issue was that uh, because of how many, uh, and this becomes clearer uh, really later on uh, in these chapters, but it's worth highlighting here already. Um, the second issue is that because of how many animals were sacrificed at these temples, they they had a surplus, essentially, of, of dead animals. Um, and so they would sell that surplus uh, as meat for people to cook at home. And this was usually much more affordable, uh, much more affordably priced compared to the other meat at the markets that was you know, raised and slaughtered just for that purpose. And so obviously there was an incentive to buy it. It's cheaper, it's easier, it's more accessible. Um, and so the debate was about whether it was appropriate for Christians to use this temple meat, uh, even in, in their homes. And so in uh, good pastoral fashion, uh, Paul answered the question itself, but also set it within a wider framework about deeper issues of the Christian life. So often Christians disagree uh, because they see clearly why an issue may be addressed in a particular way, both sides having a, a biblical rationale for their approach, but don't see a broader application or relevance behind the issue uh, as it stands. And so uh, Paul understood that problem, that there's that there's an issue and then there's all these ramifications that stand behind an issue too. And so he left a guide uh, for a, a thinking, a pattern for thinking uh, for Christians and for pastors, really. So more specifically, pastors should see his method. Um, and just since this isn't, yeah, a service uh, to embarrass him a little, we saw uh, Andy do this this morning very well for us, right? He pointed out that indeed there was the issue of, of Miriam and Aaron uh, sort of complaining, uh, but then there was this background um, issue as well that they were complaining for maybe more reasons. Uh, as, yeah, as as he put it, uh, there was there was kind of a cloud uh, over it, and they were using this to get away with some other sin and disguise some of the other things going on. And we see that come out here, right? Uh, but there's a method involved. Paul did answer the question that they actually had. It's not always uh, it's not always that we need to just dismiss the smoke screen, as Andy called it this morning. Uh, and go straight to the issue. Sometimes we have to answer the question and then set it as well within its broader significance. Uh, it can be easy to think that only the issue itself or the wider importance in which, uh, in which it resides should be handled. But Paul shows us that it is good to answer the actual question 
even when a more fundamental issue lurks in the background as well. Um, but then on the other hand, right, so that's a, that's kind of a guide for pastoral thinking. For every Christian, though, we see how Paul gives us a model of thinking about when we disagree with other believers, even about issues that are that are indeed very close to our hearts. Uh, I imagine that that resonates with all of us to some degree or other. Uh, so we have we have a twofold main point uh, with with the wider and narrower aspects. So so what I what I'm getting at tonight has a twofold main point. In other words. So I always signal my main point. More generally, Christians must consider uh, disagree within the bigger picture of doctrine and life together. Okay, Christians have to consider any disagreement we have uh, within the bigger picture of all the things that we believe, all the doctrine that we believe, and our life together. More specifically, right, more pointedly, the rule of Christian love is to be a major part of that bigger picture. The rule of Christian love is to be a major part of that bigger picture. So, uh, as you know, um, I've already reminded you, we haven't gotten through the entire section in our sermons of chapters 8 to 10 yet. So we're not going to spend time in chapter 10 tonight. Uh, so we'll, we'll look at chapters 8 and 9 now. So in chapter 8... Paul raised the issue of food offered to idols. And the disagreement was between Christians who thought that it was sin to eat this food, uh, and uh, since it had been involved in idolatry, after all, that's the issue. We shouldn't eat this because it was involved in the practices of idolatry. And on the other hand, those who saw no problem with eating this food, since those idols were merely statues and not real gods. So verses 4 to 6 highlight this problem uh, most explicitly for us. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no god but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, Yet for us, there is one God, the Father from whom all are all things, and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. So the point here is that some were not bothered by the connection between uh, whatever food they were eating and an idol, since ultimately there is only one true God. Their position was that they shouldn't worry about things connected to gods that actually aren't real beings. Uh, in, in the first move, then, of his pastoral approach, Paul answered the question, right? The idols are only so-called gods, since they're not real. He concedes that. That's a true point that they've raised. There is only one true God. And now, interestingly, to kind of pause for a moment. Uh, Paul takes takes a moment to make sure his readers know what he means by the true God. So he doesn't assume, uh, oh, yeah, either he doesn't assume 
that they're going to fill in the blanks right away, even though they're Christians, or he wants to take every opportunity to explain the true God that he can. Uh, either way, uh, he gives us more information about the true God that he means. It is not as though Christians are happy if someone acknowledges that there is just one God. It must be, in Paul's point here, it must be the Trinitarian God, who is Father, Son, and Spirit. And Paul, to, to show how he uh, did that in these verses, Paul emphasized here that the one true God must be recognized at the God who, as the God who is the Father and the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So, uh, right, the fundamental creed, the fundamental confession of, of Old Testament Israel was Deuteronomy 6-4, okay, often called the Shema, uh, which is just Hebrew for here, uh, because this verse says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Okay, And you can see the resonance of that language here in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, because right here Paul was interpreting that verse in light of his knowledge that Christ was indeed a person of the Godhead, is indeed a person of the Godhead. And so he read that confession from Deuteronomy to apply to God, to the whole God as Father and Christ as Lord, both being God, both being the one God of Israel, and both non-negotiably part of how Christians are to understand who God is. So much so is the Trinity part of Paul's understanding of the true God, that he uses that doctrine as a grid to interpret Old Testament, the Old Testament scriptures in light of what he knows after Christ's coming. Uh, his point, however, is that uh, some are correct to say that the idols were false gods and have no real existence. Uh, so he concedes that point, but he goes on to let us know that that does not actually settle the issue entirely. So we see in verses 7 to 9, or read in verses 7 to 9, however, not all possess this knowledge. I conceded the point to you that the idols aren't real, but not everyone possesses this knowledge. But some, through former association with idols, these are converted pagans after all, right? Uh, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defined. After all, I mean, it's, it's common practice, right, for people to have sensitive consciences about things that used to be their sinful inclinations before they were Christians. Um, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. So, having acknowledged that some people had a correct theological point, uh, Paul continued uh, that there are other factors on top of that to consider when looking at how to apply that knowledge. And after all, not everyone in the church understands every aspect of Christian doctrine yet. That was true then. That remains true now. <laughs> Uh, so, 
we have to think about how uh, our application of a theological truth affects other believers when we act in certain ways in, in light of doctrinal truths. Uh, this point, right, I mean, I, I, I almost hesitate to, to make the application because I feel like it lands right on the nose uh, in for today's church, not, not necessarily our congregation in a pointed way, but uh, for the church around the world. It has such relevance, doesn't it? I mean, you see it. Churches around the globe, or at least in Britain and America, uh, are splitting at the seams because Christians are in such fierce disagreements about how to respond to COVID. And, and more pointedly, how to respond to our governments uh, concerning their directions about COVID as, as they apply to uh, the church and our worship. Right? I, I mean, I, I really do not want to uh, hash out the merits of the debate on either side. Uh, but I think there are some things that, that we can note here and, and draw the connections from this passage of Scripture to the way that we think about our situation. I think that it's, it shouldn't be controversial to, to affirm two things. Uh, Christians should simply agree that we have a responsibility to our neighbors uh, and a biblical mandate about listening to our authorities. We should agree about that. And, and that also the authorities do not have the right to define for us what it means to worship or how we are to do it. We've heard that. Uh, recently, uh, at least, I mean, if you're paying attention to some news, the authority is saying it's worship, even if you're doing this, this, and this. You don't get to tell us what our worship is. Thank you very much. Uh, appreciate your concern, but that's not your job. Uh, the problems between Christians often, though not always, uh, seem to be when one, one, so in our problem today, uh, seem to be when one of those points is affirmed and the other is neglected or diminished. You no, know, it, it goes both ways. Some, some people are picking one side or the other of, of both of those, uh, truths. Uh, the difficulty, on the other hand, is for leaders to make concrete decisions about what to do in light of our affirmation that both of those doctrinal points are true. Right? So there is then today, like in Corinth, the problem of working out how to practice in light of a web of true doctrines. Right? One of our uh, most obvious, perhaps, shortcomings uh, as the conservative church holistically uh, is that because we affirm still, even though it's unfashionable today, that truth is truth uh, and that not all things are relative, we do not like to live in the difficult arena of wisdom. We want to affirm that X, X is true, which means that we must act in this way in light of truth X. Uh, to affirm that why is also true, you know, often strikes people uh, as supposedly we're diluting the truth. Um, 
The Bible presents us, though, with a, a host of truths. There, there are lots of true things. Uh, it calls us to consider them all and live in light of them all. And so there, there is a whole genre of wisdom literature in, in inspired scripture, right? We, we have Job, we have Proverbs, we have Song of Solomon. Uh, if, if you want to attach the Psalms to some degree in that, although it's not technically usually included, but we have this whole collection of wisdom books uh, because God knows that although truth is truth, and there is black and white correctness and truth, truth is also complex because many, many things are true. Right? So, so the flaw is actually in those who pretend fewer things are true, at least in reference to a particular issue at a, at a particular moment, than those who want to affirm everything that God reveals in Scripture and, and bring all of it to bear upon our life at hand. Christians do not deny other truths to make life easy for ourselves. It's not how we should do things. And we, sh- and we also shouldn't accuse other people of, of relativism uh, for wanting to live faithfully in light of all of God's truths. And that often leaves us, uh, not only now, but, it, you know, even in normal times of life with various issues that uh, differ across congregations and denominations and places and times in the world, leaves us uh, with very difficult situations often. One of the truths that we have to affirm includes that we love other things. Right? That's that's very clear in chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians. And that Christian love, concern for our brothers and their and sisters and their consciences, has to put has to put a cushion on the edge of our application of truth. Paul said that it is true that idols are not really gods. But that doesn't mean that you apply that truth in the way that you have. Your principle is right. Your application needs adjustment. The well-being of other believers is at stake. They may not yet understand the full import of that point yet. So we have to be patient and grow together in good conscience. Paul uses himself as an example with a different issue in chapter 9. So as we transition to chapter 9, in verses 1 to 12 there, he explained that as an apostle, he has the right to financial support for his ministry. Now, despite that, he said, nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Right? He wants to consider his rights in light of the responsibility to love well and to bless others. And so famously, he wrote in verses 19 to 23, for, although, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. 
to those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not, though, although not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Right. So most of the the ways that I've heard this passage uh, appealed to over my years as a Christian uh, have been uh, has, have been as an excuse to what someone wants to do. Right. I'm going to engage in X practice because it facilitates ministry and evangelism among those people over there. So, I mean, I, I am thinking most pointedly, uh, my experience in, in university uh, with Christians, you know, saying things like, well, you know, foul language and excessive drinking uh, help, helps me get a foothold uh, in that group of people uh, so that Christians don't seem so weird to them. And Paul's point was actually the opposite of that. Uh, freedom doesn't mean to do more at the cost of other believers. It means you can give up more uh, to help others grow in faith. And so we temper our practices and applications. Uh, we give up various things. We feel that we have the right to stop upon. Because it's good for other believers. And the really hard, uh, on-the-nose point here is that I think we always, always have the, the tendency to uh, want to apply this to our benefit so that others should agree with us rather than accommodating ourselves to someone else. Right? We, uh, I really do think we have to check ourselves hard here when we consider these matters because it's feasible. <laughs> it's very feasible, if not a reality, that literally everyone on this call right now is thinking of an instance where someone should be giving up something, uh, someone else should be giving up something to accommodate you, right? Uh I, as I wrote this, okay, the first place my mind is drifting, uh, was drifting was the, the, the way that someone else should have agreed with me, given up their position to accommodate me in the past. And I wasn't thinking of anyone who even lives in this country. Uh, so yeah, don't speculate about if you know them or, or if you knew what it was. Um, right. But Paul, Paul's whole purpose here is to say that you, you, reader, you, Christian, should be thinking about how you can concede for someone else's well-being, even, even when you see clearly the doctrinal strength of your own position. Whatever your issue, you know, right now, I mean, let, let this passage address you to consider it afresh, right? So, so that 
you're not thinking about how obvious it is that, that someone else needs to concede right now for, for your benefit. But, but indeed, let it challenge you to work hard about um, how you're ready to give up uh, and make sacrifices for others. If Christians, I, I think this is, uh, yeah, of, of all the things uh, to say tonight, I, I think this next thing is, is perhaps the most important. Um, so, yeah, if you've tuned out, I hope you listen to this, right? That in light of these points from these chapters, if Christians, if Christians took really seriously that we are, that we are first to think about how, how we ourselves should be repentant, humble, and self-giving as we hold multiple truths together in application for others' benefit, if we considered first what, genuinely, if we considered first what we can give up and and how we can accommodate and make sacrifice, rather than thinking first what someone else should do for us, imagine how many fewer divisions in churches there would be around the world. Of course, right, this, this has to be grounded in the gospel. And it is. It is. Second Corinthians 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake, he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Philippians 2, 4-8 Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, didn't insist on his rights, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Christ, as God's true son, had everything, every right, every privilege, but in humility set it aside precisely to benefit someone else. Yes, that is an example for us, and we've talked about that already, though. And now we see how Paul's exhortation is not arbitrary. But on top of that, however, that principle is also the the foundation of our salvation. Christ gave up everything 
to benefit you. He gave up his life to forgive your sin. He gave up his riches in heaven to make you rich in grace. He temporarily gave up his glory so that you, all of you who trust in him, would be able to enjoy his glory forever as those reconciled to your God. It's a beautiful truth, and certainly we end landing on that. We all affirm it together. Um, Let's pray that we would apply it well in the days ahead. Father God, we are thankful uh, for these portions of Scripture that exhort us to remember Christian love and that exhort us to remember that application of the truth is often complex and difficult, yet we don't give up any aspect of truth. We hold it together and we bring it all to bear on our lives, even when that's messy, even when that's hard. uh, We insist upon all that you have revealed to us. Uh, We do ask that you would help us to to center ourselves foremost in that gospel reality about Christ and what he has given up that we might be restored to our God. And yet, help us to live in light of that. Help us to live out of that, more especially. Live out of uh, having such a sure foundation, being so grounded in that truth of the gospel that we would understand how that shape of the gospel itself calls us to live in a specific way as Christians and help us to be more and more like that. As difficult as it is, as as much as we uh, see the truth of of what we believe and what we think should be done, help us to be ready uh, to apply it in ways that are good and helpful for all of our brothers and sisters. We do pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.